Well, good morning. I don't know if I've ever been able to sing that song all the way through. <laughs> that's, that's one that gets me. What we're going to be doing this morning, my name is Christian Burkhardt. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. I get the privilege to preach this morning. For those of you that are kids in here, welcome. So glad to have you. You're in here this morning because we're already starting to get things going for VBS coming up in a couple of weeks, which will be a ton of fun. Who's coming to VBS? Who's coming? Who's helping out at VBS? All right, good. This is one of those things we really do team up together as an entire church, and this morning is kind of part of that. Um, what we're going to be doing this morning, we're continuing our sermon series that we've been calling, Can I Get a Witness? What it looks like, how the Bible teaches us to speak and to live in a way that gives us opportunities to witness, to make Jesus known, to make our hope in Jesus known. And we've been looking in particular at the book of 1 Peter to help us learn about this idea of witness in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter. We've got some ushers that would love to put a Bible in your hands if you need one. You just throw your hand up in the air and they'd love to bring one for you. But as we've been going through this uh, book, the main thing, the, there's one key verse that we've been focusing on. And it's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, and it says this. But set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope that you possess. This idea of witnessing begins with setting Christ apart, setting Jesus apart as Lord in our hearts, making him our master, the one that we obey. And not just over part of your life, but all of your life. And not just as an idea, but the actual day-to-day -day living as though he is your master. Living with him as your king. Because when God's people do that, inevitably, throughout history, when God's people actually really embrace and obey Jesus as king, it causes questions. Why would you do that? Why would you handle this situation? That? Why would you be so seemingly okay with so many hard things that happen in life? Well, let me tell you about the hope that I have in Jesus. We've been looking at this idea of witnessing in so many different ways over the last few weeks. What it looks like to witness as a church, as citizens in, in submission to our government, in the workplace, in marriage last week. And this morning, we're going to focus on the idea of what does it look like to witness in the midst of suffering, which I know is everyone's favorite topic to talk about. But suffering is what the book of 1 Peter is all about. From chapter 1 clear through the end, Peter is writing to a group of people who are having a very hard Time. They were suffering a lot. The people around them were making life very difficult for them, particularly because they had set apart Jesus as Lord. It wasn't easy. What they were facing wasn't fair. But as every one of us in here who is a parent has said to our kids at least once, life isn't fair. Peter has something even better to say than just life isn't fair. And it comes in the verses that we just looked at. As a matter of fact, as we've been looking at verse Peter 3.15, I don't know if you've paid attention to the verses that come right before it, because it shapes this whole idea of what it means to give an answer for our hope. Look what he says. 
He says, for who is to harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But if, in fact, you happen to suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. What? Suffering for doing what's right is blessed? Yes, because even in times of suffering, or perhaps even more in times of suffering, followers of Jesus have opportunities to witness to our hope in Jesus. Look at this. Those are, these are the three kind of main ideas we're going to talk around today. He says, if you happen to suffer, you're blessed. Don't be terrified or be shaken, but set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give an answer to witness to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. Suffering with hope and giving a witness. How to, those are the three ideas we'll be looking at. How to witness to our hope in the midst of suffering. How to fight for hope and find hope in the midst of suffering. How God uses suffering to strengthen and focus our hope. And even how God uses the hopeful suffering of his people to draw people to himself. Now, 1 Peter is not the only book of the Bible that focuses on this idea of suffering. As a matter of fact, suffering is one of the major themes of the entire Bible. I came across a quote this week that I thought was really good. It comes from a guy named Paul Tripp. Look what he says. He says, God's grand story, of which your story is a part, is a suffering story. From the pain of Adam and Eve being thrown out of the garden, to the violent stories of the Old Testament, to the torture and execution of Christ, to the account of suffering saints weeping their way into glory in Revelation, one of the dominant themes of the great story of redemption is suffering. It is a story of suffering sinners in a suffering world who are given a suffering savior who will lead them to a place where suffering is no more. That's the world that we live in. That's the story that we're a part of. And as we begin, I think there's three key truths from this big story that we need to keep in mind and have clear in our heads in order to understand not only how to suffer well, but how to witness in the midst of suffering. And the first one is this. Suffering is bad. It is. Suffering in all of its different forms, sickness, Injury, violence, loneliness, mental illness, emotional trauma, all of it, all come from the fact that our world and our bodies, even our minds, are broken and twisted by sin. We live under the curse of sin and death. This doesn't mean that all of our suffering that we experience is a direct result of our own sinful actions. But it does mean that all suffering finds its source in the rebellion of humanity against God that began with Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden. But here's the second thing that's true. For those who trust in Jesus, one day all suffering will end. Amen? This is that glorious promise we saw at the end of the book of Revelation when we were studying through that last time. That when God makes all things new, he makes that new heaven, new earth a reality. It says in verse 4 of Revelation 21 that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. That's where we're headed. That's where this story is going. And that right there is the hope that Peter tells us to be ready to give an answer for. Not what happened to the dinosaurs. Not just whether or not we think who should get married to who. Those are important things we ought to talk about. But the hope that we witness to is the hope of a day that comes when suffering will be no more. Look at the way that Peter defines this hope in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. He says that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It won't get old. You can't lose it. It's sure. And it's kept in heaven for you who now by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Our hope, our ultimate hope is in that glory that will come when Jesus is revealed. That's what he says a couple verses later in verse 13. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So suffering is bad. And for those who trust in Jesus, one day all suffering will end. But what about now? How does that help me? How does that help us when we encounter suffering now? If suffering is bad, but God will ultimately make all things good at the end, what about in between where we live? And this is the third thing I want to bring up. Even now, even now, God can bring good from the badness of suffering. Right after talking about this living hope that awaits us in heaven, Peter goes on and he says, you rejoice in that, that imperishable inheritance that you have, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see both that ultimate hope when Jesus is revealed, but there's also this present hope that in the midst of suffering, God is proving the genuineness of our faith. It's not just a figment of our imaginations. The, the heat of suffering brings to the surface if our faith in Christ is more than just a prayer that we prayed or, but, or is actually a defining reality in our lives. This doesn't mean that we are to enjoy suffering. But yet there is joy to be found. Look, look, there's two words in this that seem like they don't go together. In this you rejoice, even though you're grieved by various trials. I would say that keeping those two conflicting emotions, the, re, the grieving over the suffering, but the rejoicing at what God is producing through the suffering... Those are very important things for us to keep in mind, both for how we suffer and how we witness in the midst of suffering. We should feel the freedom to grieve and struggle and cry out to God to end our suffering because it is bad. But we should also rejoice at what God is able to produce, the goodness that God is able to produce in the midst of it. We must distinguish in our minds between the badness of suffering and the goodness of what God produces in suffering. 
Sometimes we get confused on that. Sometimes Christians get confused and they combine these two realities and so all of a sudden they, they seem to think that suffering is good in and of itself. And throughout history, Christians have gotten off into really weird stuff trying to create suffering for themselves. We're never called to do that. Suffering, we need to realize, is bad. That's why Jesus wants to get rid of it. But that doesn't mean that he can't use it to produce good in our lives even now. The ultimate example of this is the crucifixion of Jesus. Think about that for a second. The Son of God being beaten and spat upon and ultimately killed by the very people he came to save. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? It was bad. It was the single most evil thing that has ever been done. But at the same time, even in the midst of that most evil thing, God accomplished something incredibly, amazingly good. Look what Peter says in chapter 3. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So people killing Jesus is very bad. Yes? Jesus suffering in order to bring us to God, very good. That is key that we distinguish those in our witness. Otherwise, we can just get weird about this. But if instead we hold on, this is bad, Jesus will ultimately end this, and even now he can work it for good, well, now we have a path toward hope in the midst of suffering. We have to distinguish between the badness of suffering and the goodness of what God does. I've said that about 15 times. Does that make sense? Okay. We also need to distinguish between different types of suffering. Look at what Peter says back in chapter 1, verse 6. He says that we have been grieved by various trials. Suffering is not one size fits all. Each of us experience suffering in different ways, to different degrees, and I would even say from different causes. And as I survey scripture and just experience and the people that I've talked with, it seems to me that we can break down the causes of our suffering into four main categories. Suffering that's caused by someone else's sin. Suffering that's caused by your own sin. Suffering that's just caused by the brokenness in our world and in our own bodies and minds and everything. And then suffering that's caused by assisting others in their suffering. Each of these is a little bit different. And I would even say the, the grace that is available to us in the midst of this suffering is a little bit different. So how is it different? That's what I want to spend the next several minutes talking with you about. What does it look like to witness to our hope in Christ in the midst of these different causes of suffering? First, let's talk about when you suffer because of someone else's sin. This, I would say, is the main type of suffering that Peter talks about in his letter. He's writing to a group of people who, I said before, are being mistreated seems predominantly because they are identified with Jesus Christ. This is what we would call persecution. Treating someone unfairly or wrongly because of their, their faith. And that may be where some of you are today. It also may be that some of you are suffering 
Not necessarily because, directly because of your faith, but it's definitely something that someone is doing to you. And either way, I would say Peter's encouragement is the same. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. Peter's going to say something surprising. He says, For this is a gracious thing, when, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? If when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It's a gracious thing to suffer unfairly? What does that mean? Well, first I would say we have to keep in mind that this doesn't mean that somehow suffering unfairly earns God's grace. Somehow, oh, good, you suffered unjustly. Here you go. I mean, grace isn't something that we can earn anyway. But instead, I think the way we need to understand this is that in the midst of unfair trials, unfair suffering, God's grace meets us there. If you are in this type of situation, look to God for grace to endure day by day in the midst of the unfairness of it. Without getting bitter, without returning fire. God's grace can empower you to continue. And even, I would say, to put Jesus on display through your suffering. Because this is the example that Jesus set for us. Look what he says in just the next verse, in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, insulted, he did not revile or insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Throughout this letter, in the midst of talking about hope and suffering, Peter keeps coming back to the example of Jesus and saying, follow in his steps. If it was worth it for Jesus, it's worth it for you to follow in his steps. Jesus had done nothing wrong. He didn't deserve the treatment, the torture, the crucifixion he received. But yet he refused to threaten or insult in return. Instead, it says, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And if you are suffering because of someone else's sin, either because of something they've done to you or just the ramifications, the consequences of their sin are affecting you as well, Jesus is your model. And as you follow him, God's grace meets you in the midst of that and even puts Jesus on display through you. God understands your situation. He understands the true injustice of it better than you do. And he will make everything right one day. But until then, trust him. Follow him. Set Jesus Christ apart as, bleh, let me say that again. Set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. And this is a gracious thing in God's sight. Now, one note before I move on to the next thing. Last week, when Chris was talking about marriage, 
He made a statement that if, if, if you are in an abusive relationship, if, if a wife is being physically abused by her husband, you don't need to stay in that situation, he said. And I want to come back and address that for a second. If it is a gracious thing in the sight of God to endure unjust suffering, well, understand, if God's grace meets us in the midst of that, oftentimes in an abusive relationship when a spouse is being abused by someone else, the grace of God looks like a call to 911 and a black and white car to haul your abuser away. Let me make that very clear. The grace that God provides through his appointed governing authorities over us is protection in that situation. That doesn't necessarily mean you run right from there to sign divorce papers. That's something that, that we can walk through with you and discern with you. But it does mean that you seek protection that is afforded to you by our governing authorities, even as your spouse is made to face the consequences for their sinful behavior. Now, that may not make your situation easier. That actually might make it harder, especially if your spouse is the main breadwinner. But as Chris said last week, that's where we as your church family, and I'm speaking to all of us now, we need to be ready to shoulder that burden and care for those who are in the midst of that suffering. We'll come back to that in a couple minutes when we talk about the last type of suffering. But I want to shift gears now and talk about what if, maybe you're sitting here this morning and say, okay, that's good and all, but I know I, I cooked my own goose. I know that the, that the suffering I'm facing is a direct result of my own sinful actions. How do I witness to Christ then? Well, first off, Peter makes it clear in his letter that there is nothing particularly noble and nothing, really nothing Christ-like about suffering because of your own sinful actions. Look what he says back in verse 20, or 2.20. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer, that's the gracious thing. He comes back in chapter four and he says something very similar. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or even just a meddler, a busybody, somebody who likes to get in everybody else's business. If you find yourself lonely and without friends because you were the, the nosy person who couldn't get out of it, you've cooked your own goose, he's saying. Let none of you suffer in those ways. That is not Christ-like suffering, but that does not mean that there is no grace available for you in the midst of this, or that there's not a redemption, that, that your suffering is somehow unredeemable. Just like those who are suffering because of someone else's sin, Peter's instruction is the same. Look to Jesus, not necessarily as your example to follow, but as your Savior, as your Redeemer from your sin. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's what we just sang. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Jesus bearing our sin 
means that we can be forgiven and made new and have a new identity. If you are in Christ, your past sins do not define you anymore. But that does not necessarily mean that you don't have to live with the consequences in this life and in your relationship that come from those sins. It does mean that you can face those consequences with honesty and humility and hope. Because by the grace of God, for those who trust in Jesus, failure is never final. Amen? But be honest about this. I mean, if you're suffering because of your own sinful actions, then most likely those closest to you are suffering as well. And so, where this begins is with confession. Open, honest, specific confession to those who are suffering because of your sin. Not, if I might have hurt you, please forgive me, but this is what I've done to hurt you. Please forgive me. Make restitution if possible. And Peter would say, going forward, seek to do good. Seek to do right. Basically, Peter's summary statement on this whole idea of suffering comes in 419 when he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It may take a long time for the people who've been hurt by your sinful actions to believe that the change that God is working in you is real and not just an act. But even in suffering because of your own sin, you can endure with hope that even the consequences of that sin, God can use it to prove both to you and to those around you the tested genuineness of your faith. Wow, you really are different than you were before. What changed? Well, there's an opportunity to witness to the hope that is within you. For some of you, your witness needs to start this week with confession. Not preaching, not putting a Bible verse on the tagline of your email, but actual confession to those who've been hurt by your sin. Let's look at the third one. Suffering that's caused by brokenness. For many of you, this is the defining reality in your life. The suffering that you're dealing with isn't tied to specific sinful actions by you or by others. It's more just tied to the brokenness and decay that's in our world and in our bodies. Chronic illness, freak accidents, natural disasters, mental illness, birth defects, physical disabilities, all of it. Sometimes this type of, like, like, like physical suffering like this, we can tie to specific sinful actions. Like the guy who smokes for 40 years and then gets lung cancer. There's a connection there. In the same way, the woman who abused drugs while pregnant, and now their child has to deal with the consequences of that. We can make a direct connection there. But oftentimes... There's not such a direct connection to be made. There's no clear 
person at fault in the situation. It's, it's more like the, the story of the man who was born blind in John 9. If you're familiar with that story, Jesus and his disciples are walking towards Jerusalem. They see this man who's been blind from birth, and the disciples ask him, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus responds and says, it was not this man or his parents that sinned, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he healed him. He gave him for the first time in his life the ability to see. And I would say to you, if you are struggling with suffering caused by brokenness, I would encourage you to pay special attention to the healing miracles of Jesus for two reasons. When we see Jesus heal people, it shows us that Jesus is deeply concerned about our brokenness. He cares about it. Sometimes we get this idea in our heads that Jesus is somehow more concerned with our spiritual well-being than our physical well-being. We kind of set these two opposed to each other. But when you read the Gospels, when you see Jesus in the Gospels, we don't see him making that distinction. He cares about our physical, mental, and emotional health. He cares about it. The second thing I would say, here's why, why to focus on Jesus' healing miracles, is because they are signs of his coming kingdom. They are signs and symbols of what it will be like when he returns and makes all things new. They give us confidence that no matter how long it lasts, our suffering will end one day. Pray for release from your suffering. Pray for healing, for wholeness. I would never discourage you from doing that because God is able to do it. And he may. But I will say this. Don't just pray for release from your suffering. There's a story in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that Paul tells about suffering that he experienced. He refers to it as his thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was. It could have been a physical ailment that he was dealing with. He says it's a messenger from Satan. It could be some sort of demonic attack. But whatever it is, it was a huge, bothersome, painful hindrance to his life and ministry. And the way that he records his prayer conversation with Jesus on this is incredibly insightful. Check this out. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. It's enough for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Three times Peter asks to be released from his suffering. And Jesus doesn't come back and say, stop asking me. He doesn't reprimand him. Ultimately, Jesus will release, he did release Peter from this, or Paul from this. But at the same time, he says, I won't release you. But what I'll do is I'll give you power in the midst of it. I'll give you grace in the midst of it. Grace to endure, grace to even put Jesus on display. And look at how Paul responds to this in the rest of verse 9. He says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's amazing, isn't it? Gladness and even contentment in the midst of suffering. Some of you might be sitting here today, you you hear that and you go, okay, that's great for Paul and all, but I'm not there yet. I don't know if I ever will get there. And frankly, I don't want to be at the point where I'm glad and content in this. I want out of it. This is where we need to remember that Paul was human just like we are. And he probably didn't get to this point overnight. As a matter of fact, here in 2 Corinthians 12, he's talking about an experience that could have happened as much as 14 years ago, he says. So what we read right here in these verses are the words of a man who struggled and rustled and suffered and cried out to God for over a decade. And what did that prolonged suffering produce? A tested, genuine faith in Jesus. A hope that was fixed on the ultimate glory that would come when Jesus came back. He writes this earlier on in 2 Corinthians. He says, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If you're not there yet, where you can look at your suffering and say, this is light and momentary compared to the glory that God has in store for me, the last thing I want is for you to feel guilty right now. I want to encourage you to be patient with yourself. Be patient with God. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your hope on that eternal weight of glory. And then watch for Jesus to demonstrate his power in the midst of your weakness. The thing about God demonstrating his power in the midst of our weakness is we don't feel powerful. We still feel weak. And yet God puts his power on display. The last type of suffering. Suffering that's caused by assisting others in their suffering. Maybe this is where some of you are today. You saw a need in someone around you and you didn't just do the convenient thing. Some token of help that allowed you to get on your way without really being disrupted at all. No, instead what you did was you went out of your way. You inconvenienced yourself your time, your resources, your comfort to help a brother or sister in need, to to help a child in need, to bring an elderly parent into your home, to provide shelter for someone who was fleeing abuse, to wade into these bigger issues of abortion and human trafficking, addiction, all of that, because you knew that's what God was calling you to do. But now it's not just about assisting someone else in their suffering. You're suffering too. You're bearing this burden in a way where it has become burdensome to you as well. There's a different pressure that comes with this type of suffering because unlike most of the other ones, you willingly chose to enter this. 
But now it's moved past the point of just helping someone and you're suffering too. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to persevere, to keep going. Not in your own strength. Jesus couldn't even do this in his own strength. And ultimately, this type of suffering is the most directly Christ-like. This is exactly what Jesus did for us. He willfully chose to inconvenience himself, to leave the glory of heaven, to take on flesh, to become fully human while remaining fully God in order to enter into and assist us with our suffering. Ultimately, by suffering for us. I flipped to it just a second ago, but remember that prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion? He knows all that it's about to come, and he is distressed by it. And so he even prays, asking his father for a way around the suffering. Now, I want to watch. I want you to see. I'm going to leave this out statement by statement. Jesus begins by saying, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. And maybe that's where you're at right now. You're at the point where this morning you're saying, Jesus, please take this away. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can keep doing this. But then Jesus, after making this request, follows up with the most beautiful, most heart-wrenching example of submission in the midst of suffering. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If this is the road you want me to walk, I'll walk it. Look what happens immediately after this. And then there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. This is that point where Jesus has tapped out and God provides him with supernatural strength in the midst of it. But here's the thing. The strength that God provided didn't make the situation easier. Look what happens next. With that strength from the angel, being in agony... He prayed even more earnestly to the point where his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The strength that God provided for Jesus in this moment didn't take him out of the agony. It empowered him to remain and embrace it all the way to the cross. Ultimately, Jesus suffered for us so that one day our suffering might come to an end. Yet, even Jesus could not do this in his own strength. So how much more do we need God's strength to face what we face? And that's what I want to end with. Don't walk alone. Whatever you're dealing with, even if life is easy right now, understand this. If we all need the empowerment, the strength of God to face our suffering Do you know one of the main ways that God provides that for us? It's through each other. Here in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uses the analogy of a physical body to talk about the way that the church is designed by God to operate. He says, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have, get this, the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, 
all rejoice together. If you get anything from this, get this. Suffering is meant to be shared. The load is meant to be distributed. One of the most often quoted quasi-Bible verses that's actually not in the Bible is that God won't give you more than you can handle. Have you ever heard that? It's not true. (laughs) At least it's not completely true. God may give you more than you can handle. You know why? Because he doesn't mean for you to handle it on your own. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And so I would say this to you. If life is pretty pain-free for you at the moment, you have the opportunity to put Christ on display by willingly choosing to enter into the suffering of others. If life is pretty painful right now, you have the opportunity to put Jesus on display by calling your brothers and sisters to carry it with you. And as we do this, as we learn to suffer well in hope together, what a beautiful picture of the love of Jesus we will give to those around us. They might even ask us for a reason for the hope that's in us. Here's the way I want to end this morning. I'm going to give us some time to pray together in light of what we've heard. If suffering is meant to be shared and it's essential to our witness that we share it well, then let's ask God to teach us how to share our suffering. I'm going to give us about three or four minutes in prayer quietly by yourselves. And I want you to pray around these two questions. Who do I need to share my suffering with? And whose suffering do I need to share? If you're in a hard time, who do I need to share this with? If you feel like you have the capacity to help someone right now, Lord, who would you have me enter into this suffering with? And it's not necessarily either or, because here's the thing. Some of you right now, in the midst of suffering, you know you've lost perspective on everything else. All you can see is the pain of what's right in front of you. And I would say the gracious thing that God might be calling you to do today is to assist someone else in their suffering, even in the midst of your own pain, so that you might gain perspective and actually see, wow, God, your grace is sufficient, not just for my pain, but to allow me to carry it with someone else as well. Regardless, I would say, if if God brings someone to your mind in these next couple of minutes, make a point to talk with them this week, even today. If you see them here in the room, make a beeline for them after the service. Some of y'all, like seriously, you're, you're, you're waiting for me to call the band up because you leave right afterward anyways. And I would just say, perhaps today, consider that God is calling you to share in the sufferings of others and linger. If you don't know anyone else, maybe this is your first time here, there's gonna be some of us up at the prayer room that would love to pray with you. But the next couple of minutes are, are, are all yours. I'm gonna call Billy up. He's just gonna play some music softly. And spend some time praying, asking God, Lord, how would you have me share in suffering? Amen? Amen. All right.